Section 1 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. An Outline Narrative tracing briefly the causes connections and consequences of the great events the period of the roman empire charles f horn so vast and wonderful a construction was the roman world so different from our own that we are apt to imagine it as an arrangement far more deliberately planned far more mechanically complete than it appeared to its own inhabitants from a cursory glance we may carry away wholly mistaken conceptions of its thought and purpose. Thus, for instance, the Roman Republic never assumed the definite design of conquering the world. Its people had only the vaguest conception of whither the world might extend. They merely quarreled with their neighbors, defeated and then annexed them. At almost any time after Hannibal's death, Rome might have marched her legions, practically unopposed over all the lands within her reach yet she permitted a century and a half to elapse ere pompey asserted her sovereignty over asia it was left for augustus to take the final step and by absorbing egypt make his country become in name what it had long been in fact the ruler of the civilized world thus too we think of augustus as a kindly despot, supreme, and governed only by his own will. But his compatriots looked on him as simply the chief citizen of their republic. They considered that of their own free will, to escape the dangers of further civil war, they had chosen to confer upon one man, eminently safe and sane, all the high offices whose holders had previously battled against one another. So Augustus was emperor, or imperator, which meant no more than general of the armies of the Republic. He was consul, or chief civil administrator of the Republic. He was Pontifex Maximus, high priest of the Republic. He could have had more titles and offices still if he would have accepted them from an obsequious senate. But the title of king, so obnoxious to Roman taste, Augustus never sought. Nor did his successors, who were in turn appointed to all his offices. For nearly three centuries, after the one-man power had become absolute, Rome continued to call itself a republic, to go through forms of election and ceremonial which grew ever more and more meaningless and trivial. Augustus seems to have felt the tremendous weight of his position, and to have tried honestly to divide his authority. He invested the trembling Senate with both power and responsibility. In theory, it became as influential as he. But the appointment of its members, and also the supreme control of the armies, remained always with the Imperator, and thus the Senate continued, in reality, little better than a flickering shadow. 
Under the reign of a well-meaning emperor, it loomed large and often dilated into a very valuable and honorable body. In the grip of a tyrant, it sank at once to its true aspect of helpless and obsequious submission. The Roman Peace To the outside world, the reign of the emperors was welcome. The provinces were governed by salaried officials whose conduct was seriously investigated. The hideous extortions and cruelties of the governors, sent out in their earlier days of the Republic, almost disappeared. The milder rule seemed happy in the contrast. An emperor might be a brute at home, but his personal cruelties could scarce spread over an entire world. Money for even the hugest extravagances of only one man, the provinces could supply. At first, they scarce felt the drain. For two entire centuries after Augustus had assumed power, the world flourished and apparently prospered under the Roman peace. The ruins of Pompeii, the tale of its destruction, show how well and how lazily the upper classes and even the masses lived. The legions were scarce needed except for petty wars along the frontier. The defeat inflicted by the German barbarians was avenged, and the northern wilderness seems to have come very near to sharing the fate of Gaul. But the long campaigns were costly and apparently valueless. No taxes flowed into the treasury from the poor, half-subjugated savages, and the Emperor Tiberius contemptuously declared that he would leave them to fight among themselves. Another frontier strife completed the subjugation of Spain. Another added Britain to the empire. Another made temporary conquest over Dacia and extended the Asian boundary. There were minor revolts in Gaul. Then the Jews, roused to sudden religious frenzy and believing themselves invincible, burst into rebellion. Titus stormed their capital and burned their temple but the lesson was wasted on the stubborn, fanatical race, and sixty years later they flared out again. Roman relentlessness was roused to its fullest rage and accomplished against them the destruction of prophecy. Their cities were razed to the ground, and the poor remnant of the race were scattered abroad. Yet apparently imperishable, refusing to be merged with other men, they remained a people, though without a country. They became what they are today, a nation of wanderers. One other tumult, more central, and in the sense more serious, intruded on the Roman system. Just a century after the rise of Augustus, the tyrannies of his successor Nero became so unbearable that even his own senate turned against him, and he was slain, without having appointed a successor. The pure military character of the empire was at once revealed. Different armies each upheld their own general as an emperor. The claimants attacked one another in turn, and the strongest won. The turmoil lasted for only a year or so, just long enough for the distant legions to gather around Rome. The bloodshed was nothing as compared to former ages. The helpless senate acquiesced in each new proclamation of each successful army, and the rest of the world 
scarce even jarred in its daily course, flowed on as before. On the whole, then, these two hundred years were one long period of peace. It was Augustus who, for the first time in centuries, closed the gates of the war god's temple in Rome. He encouraged literature, and we have the Augustan age. He boasted that he found Rome built of bricks and left it of marble. He and his successors did far more than that. They constructed roads extending from end to end of their domains. Communication became easy. A mail post was established. People began to travel for pleasure. The nations of the world intermingled freely and discovered for the first time on earth that they were much alike. The universal brotherhood of man, maybe not even yet fully recognized and welcomed, but the first step toward its acknowledgement was taken under imperial Rome. Christianity. This brings us to a very solemn thought. Many earnest men have believed that they see a divine providence running through the whole course of history, and nowhere more obvious than here. They point to the careers of both Greece and Rome as being a special preparation for the coming of Christ. The mission of Greece, they tell us, was to arouse the mind of man, to make him capable of thought and sensitive to spiritual beauty. That of Rome was to teach him the value of law and peace, and yet more, to draw all men together, that all might have opportunity to hear the lessons of the new faith. Certain is it that at any earlier date it would have seemed practically impossible for a religion to spread beyond a single people. Not only was communication between the nations faint and intermittent, but they were so savage, so suspicious of each other, that a wanderer had to meet them weapon in hand. He must have a ship to flee to, or an army at his back. Now, however, under the restraint of Roman law, strangers met and passed without a blow. Latin, the tongue of law, was everywhere partly known. Greek was almost equally widespread as the language of art and culture. The Hebrews, too, had done their share in the work of preparation. They had developed the religious sense beyond any of the Aryan peoples. Their religion had become a part, the main part, of their daily lives. They believed it not with the languid logic of the Romans, not with the sensuous pleasure of the Greeks, but fiercely, fervidly, with a passion that swept all reason to the winds. Among them appeared the Christ, born in the days of Augustus, crucified in those of Tiberius. His teaching was mainly the doctrine of love, which Buddha had announced five hundred years before, but which was new to the Roman world, and the promise of life beyond the grave, which many races had more or less believed in, but which never before had been made to carry a vision of such splendor and such glory. He also advocated non-resistance to enemies, a principle which the early church obeyed, but which has found small favor among the masses of later Christians. These teachings, then, were none of them wholly unconceived before, but they were enforced by a life so pure, a manner so earnest, 
as compelled respect. Converts became many, and one of these at least took literally the command of the master to proclaim the faith to all peoples of the earth. The Apostle Paul, stepping beyond the narrow bounds of Judea, preached Christianity to mankind. Paul was the first great missionary. The earlier faiths of Greece and Rome had not sought to extend themselves because they did not recognize the brotherhood of man. The new faith insisted upon this, insisted on our duty to our fellows. And so, under Paul's leadership, every Christian became a missionary, teaching, uplifting the downtrodden, giving them hope, not of this world, but of an infinitely brighter one. The faith spread faster than ever world conquest had been spread before. Scarce a generation after the crucifixion, it had permeated the empire. And Nero, to divert himself the suspicion of having burned Rome, accused the Christians. This led to their first persecution. They were tortured as a punishment, and to extort confession, most of them stood nobly by their doctrine of non-resistance and endured heroically a martyrdom which they looked on as opening the gates of heaven. Their devotion drew to them the first serious notice of the Roman authorities. Hitherto they had been regarded merely as a sect among the Jews, but now, with reluctant admiration of their courage, there came also a recognition of their rapid growth, and a suspicion of their motives. The Romans could not understand such devotion to a mere religion, and they always feared, lest the faith was something more, a cloak for nameless crimes, or a secret conspiracy of rebellion among their slaves, who would some day turn and rend them. Thus, while Nero's attack on the Christians was in a sense an accident, the blind rush of a half-crazed beast, the later persecutions were often directed by serious and well-intentioned emperors and magistrates. The Romans were far from being intolerant. They had interfered very little with the religions of their subject races, and had, indeed, adopted more than one foreign god into their own temples. They were quite willing that the Christ should be worshipped. What they could not understand was that reverence to one God should forbid reverence to another. It was the new religion which was intolerant, which, in the passionate intensity of its faith, attacked the old gods, denied their existence, or declared them devils. When a man was summoned before a Roman court on the charge of being a Christian, he was not, as a rule, asked to deny Christ, only there being a general impression that his sect was evil. He was required to prove his honest citizenship and general good character by doing reverence to the Roman gods. In spite of persecution, some writers say because of it, Christianity spread. Toward the end of the first two hundred years of the empire, it seemed about the only prosperous institution in a world which was beginning to go badly. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the last of the good Roman emperors, troubles, some accidental, some inherent in the Roman system, were gathering very dark. The curse of inaction, of wealth without liberty, of intellect without a goal to strive toward, 
had long been corrupting the upper classes. Now a terrible plague swept the world from end to end, so that laborers became scarce, lands went untenanted, taxes unpaid. The drain of supporting Rome's boundless extravagance in buildings, feasts, and gladiatorial displays began to tell upon the provinces at last. Newer and ever harsher methods had to be employed to wring money from exhausted lands. Driven by their sufferings to cling to religion as a support, men thought of it more seriously, and a cry went up that earth was being punished for its neglect and insult of the ancient gods. The Christians were persecuted anew. The period of decay. The reign of Commodus, son of Marcus Aurelius, marks the beginning of a century which sank almost into anarchy. He was murdered, and his guards auctioned the empire to the highest bidder. Once more the legions fought against each other and placed their generals upon the throne. During ninety-two years there were twenty-five emperors fully acknowledged, besides a far larger number of claimants, who were overthrown before Rome had time to hear of and salute them. The imperial city was no longer mistress of the world. She was only its capital, as feeble and helpless as the other cities, which these unstable emperors began at times to favor in her stead. The barbarians also, who through all these ages were growing stronger while Rome grew weaker, became ever a more serious menace. The internal disorder of the empire left its frontiers often unguarded. The Germans plundered Gaul in the west. The Persians ravaged Asia in the east. In fact, so comparatively strong had the Persians grown that one emperor, venturing against them, was defeated and captured, and lived out his miserable life a Persian slave. Rome could not rescue him. In the year 284, there came to the front an emperor of iron, Diocletian. He did what Augustus had done three centuries before, reformed and recast the government of the world. The last empty ceremonies of the Republic were discarded. Even the pretense of Rome's leadership was brushed aside. The empire was divided into four districts, each with a capital of its own, and Diocletian selected three other generals to share its rule with him. He and his colleagues restored the long-lost peace. They chastised the barbarians. Diocletian's reform saved the Roman fabric from what seemed inevitable extinction, and enabled it to exist in some shape for almost another two hundred years. His system of division did not, however, save the empire from civil wars. No sooner was his restraining hand removed than his colleagues fought among themselves, until Constantine overthrew his antagonists and once more united the entire empire. Constantine became a Christian. It has been repeatedly asserted that his conversion was one of policy rather than belief and there could be no stronger evidence of the changed position of the new faith. Diocletian had ordered a persecution against it, the last and most terrible which its martyrs suffered. 
but all that was best and most energetic and most living in the moribund empire seemed to have gathered round the church the persecution did but emphasize its worth and influence constantine did not force his followers to change their beliefs with him but he encouraged and rewarded those who did under him was held the first general council of the faith the bishops gathered from all the different cities of the world to compare ideas and settle more exactly the doctrines to be taught christianity stepped out from its hiding place and supplanted paganism as the state religion of the empire as though the unimportance of rome were not thus sufficiently established constantine abandoned the decaying capital altogether and built himself a new city constantinople at the junction of europe and asia this became the centre of the changing world built upon the site of an old greek colony it was almost wholly greek not only in the nationality of the people who flocked to it but in the manners of the court which constantine created around him in the art of its decorators in the language of its streets the empire remained roman only in name the might of a thousand years had made that name a magic spell had sunk its restraining influence deep in the minds of men it was not lightly to be thrown aside julian a nephew of constantine who after an interval succeeded him upon the throne abandoned the adopted religion of his family and tried to revive paganism julian was a powerful and clever man he seems also to have been an honest and an earnest one but he could not turn back the current of the world he could not make shallow speculation take the place of earnest faith altruism the spirit of brotherhood which was the animating force of christianity might and later somewhat did lose itself amid the sands of selfishness but it could not be combated by one man with a chance preference for egotism julian turned to a worthier purpose he died fighting the barbarians these held back for a time by diocletian and constantine were recommencing their ravages with renewed force and now a change comes over the character of the invasions hitherto they had been mere raids for plunder but now a huge far-reaching racial movement was in progress from the distant plains of asia came the vanguard of the huns a race of horsemen whose swift steeds enabled them to scatter or concentrate at will around slower-paced opponents the huns swept over southern russia then occupied by the goths the most civilized of the teutonic tribes the goths finding themselves helpless against the active and fierce marauders moved onward in their turn they crossed the danube not as a raiding troop but as an entire nation and half begging half demanding a place of refuge they penetrated into the world of civilization with them came fearful stories of the huns but these latter sweeping off in another direction failed for a while to follow up the fugitives as for the goths after they had defeated and slain one emperor they were given lands and temporarily subdued by theodosius the great the last ruler to hold the entire roman domain in 395 
Theodosius, dying, divided his possessions quite like a hereditary monarch between his two sons, both mere boys. To the elder he gave Constantinople and the East, to the younger Rome and the West. So instead of one kingdom, there were two, Partly through its own disorganization, partly from the pressure of the barbarians, the Roman world had burst and fallen into halves. These proved two very helpless and feeble halves in the hands of their boy rulers, and the eager Teutons, finding themselves no longer withheld, began that remarkable series of plundering invasions by which they overwhelmed the ancient world. End of section 1